I needed a little bit of a jump start. I've worked all day long. I looked at myself in the mirror. I said, Mom, I'm not even dressed up at all to be speaking tonight. I've, I've worked all day, and Mom met me, and we come up the hill, and here we are, and I'm just so excited to be here. I said, I need to do some jumping jacks or something to get my blood flowing. Well, tonight I'm going to be speaking to you, and I will also be speaking next Wednesday night, so that is either a warning or a something, but I just, but one of the things with coming back uh, next Wednesday night, just so you know, um, this is going to be a continuation next Wednesday night as well. So tonight we're just going to be uh, started in on what I am wanting to bring to you tonight, and then next Wednesday night, I hope, Lord willing willing to be able to finish it up. So tonight it may be a little more teaching and uh, we may be looking at some scriptures that I don't know, I don't know about you, they're not ones that I've heard preached from too awful often. Um, I don't know if that's proper grammar or not, awful often. If you're an English teacher in here, please forgive me. Um, I do not claim to have great grammar. Um, but anyway, so tonight we are going to talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And this is just something that I have had on my mind for several weeks now. And so when I was asked to um, be able to speak tonight, it was like, okay, I guess this is where, I, where we're going. But the first time that the word Christian is found in the Bible is in what book? Very good. Anyone know what chapter? Hey, Acts is great. That was a great answer. So it's Acts chapter 11. And one of the things that I just want to talk to you about is about the word Christian. This was interesting to me because I started doing some um, research on the word Christian and how it came about in the Bible and so forth. And um, went to one of the resources I go to quite often. It's called Got Questions. And this is what I put in there. What is the meaning of the term Christian? The followers of Jesus Christ were first referred to as Christians by the Gentiles of Syrian Antioch, and the name was more than likely meant as an insult. I did not realize that. In the New Testament, believers never refer to themselves as Christians. Rather, they use such terms as brethren, disciples, and saints. Before his conversion, Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul, sought out to kill those who belonged to the way. So there's also some indication that an early label for Christians could have been people of the way. Believers in Christ came to be called Christians during a time of rapid expansion in the church and persecution had forced many believers from Jerusalem, and they scattered to various areas, taking the gospel with them. The evangelism was first limited to Jewish populations, but that changed when men from Sirius and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Barnabas and Saul were both teaching in the church, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I thought that was interesting that at first it was meant as an insult, and as you do further um, reading and studying on that, it's because the Gentiles were saying, oh, look at those people, those people that are supposed to be acting like Christ, and here comes the word Christian. At the time that believers got the name Christians, it was common for the Greeks to give sarcastic nicknames to particular groups. Greek, Greeks called these characterized by behavior and speech centered on Christ, Christians, or those of the party of Christ. Had anyone ever heard about this before? Okay, hey, I see some shaking hands. All right, you get an A plus, good job. 
In the book of Acts, we see the unbelieving Jews referring to Christians as those of the Nazarene sect, Nazareth being a city of low esteem in the midst of most Israelites. Remember how they said, how can anything good come from Nazarene, right? How, how can anything good come from Nazareth when they were referring to Jesus? Both the Bible and history suggest that the term Christian was probably meant as a mocking insult when it was first coined. Peter actually tells his readers not to be ashamed if they are called by that term. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ, one who has committed to walk as Jesus did, one who has faith in Jesus as the Savior, and one who is unashamed to say Jesus is Lord, and they believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. If you think about what it is to be a Christian, as the term then changed a little bit from being something of originally from insult and sarcasm to something that really truly they more embraced. I was thinking about this because to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. To follow Christ. Committed to walk as Jesus did. One who has faith in Jesus as Savior. It's not just enough to believe that he was this great man who walked on the earth one day and and he did all these great things and oh yeah, he was a great prophet, prophet and all of that. It's also to have faith in Jesus as Savior. Savior. It is to be unashamed of Jesus Christ. And it is to believe in his resurrection from the dead. Remember the last time I spoke, I spoke on Jesus's resurrection and how crucial it was for not only the crucifixion of Jesus, but also for him to rise again from the dead that they went together. It was the work, that whole thing, that was the completion of Jesus's plan and God's plan for us for salvation. But I was also thinking about this because today many call themselves a Christian and the word is sometimes thrown around in conversation. Have you ever noticed how people are miraculously a Christian whenever something bad is going on in their life? Or all of a sudden you're talking with somebody and you tell them that you're a Christian. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian too. And you're sometimes like, oh, didn't know that. Maybe don't say it, but maybe you kind of thank it like, oh, like I had no idea, right? Have you ever had that? You don't have to raise your hand on that one, okay? You don't have to raise your hand on that one. But sometimes I feel like the word Christian for today has almost gotten a little cheapened because it's just easily used. It's almost like, well, anyone can be a Christian. I'm a good person. That makes me a Christian, right? Or yes, I'm a Christian because I'm going to heaven. Of course I'm going to heaven. Only super, super, super bad people go to hell. So yeah, I am definitely a Christian. You you see the mentality that we kind of get into when we talk to people and we look at our society today. But the times that we see that, we have to ask the question because is there proclamation of being a Christian really associated with the things of Christ. And you think about it because to be a Christian, it means that you are Christ-like. And so none of us want to just throw around that word because there's so much more to it than just the title. It's kind of like how, oh, I love that. You know how we've talked about how it kind of just using love for anything. Oh, I love spaghetti. I love my dog, which I really do love my dog. But um, I just love this, that, or the other. And it, it can sometimes cheapen what the word love really is meaning and what it's truly for. And I think that can happen with the word Christian as well. It just kind of gets thrown around. And a lot of times when it's convenient. 
But to be a Christian, it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is more than just saying a prayer and then going on with life. It is more than that. To be a Christian, it is discipleship. It is change. To be a Christian means there is change in one's life. If there is no change, you know where I'm going with that, right? If there is no change, has there been truly repentance? And true repentance is how you become a Christian. Being a Christian is growth. There has to be some maturity that takes place. Paul says you can't just keep living on milk all the time like a baby. You have to grow up and start eating some real adult food. Also being a Christian is denying of self. It's the part of taking up your cross daily, following the Lord, denying yourself. Being a Christian is a hunger. It's a thirst after righteousness. It is longing. It is desiring for the things that are pleasing to God. It is a desire and a hunger and a thirst after righteousness, the things that are right in the eyes of the Lord. It is following in Jesus' steps. And it is following his example. So as I was thinking about that, I got to thinking about what is the best way to be able to know how to follow in the steps of Jesus. Well, I like to look, uh, just started up again. I'd finished the Bible and I thought, well, where am I gonna start again? Because I had last time started in Genesis and got through Revelation. So I was like, okay, I think I may start in Matthew again. So I'm in Matthew again and Um, going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I've been thinking about the life that Jesus Christ lived while he was here on this earth. If we want an example to follow, right there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have an example of Jesus's life when he walked on this earth. And there are a few things that stand out to me about Jesus's life while he was here on this earth. And maybe these aren't the same things that stand out to you, but these are the things that have always kind of gotten my attention um, concerning Jesus's life while he was here. One is how he interacted with non-believers. Very fascinated about how he would interact with those who were not of the faith, of believing in him, of believing in him as the Messiah, as those that did not maybe even know much about even the Jewish way of life and of living. I I just find it so interesting. I also find it very interesting how Jesus interacted with believers how Jesus interacted with believers while he was here on earth those that were considered great spiritual leaders. Number three, something that sticks out to me is how he interacted with those in need. Always think about how he interacted with the poor, how he said, the poor you will have with you always. How he would interact with those that were sick, women, children. You know, you think about it, children. What were children back then? They needed to be out of sight, out of mind type of little things that ran around. You know, but that's not what he, that's not how Jesus looked at him. He said, no, suffer the little children to come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven. I love how he interacted with women. Women who were considered to be like, again, you're not to be seen. You're not to be heard. You're not to be up here doing what I'm doing right now. Those type of things. Like you think about it, how he interacted with women. This is another thing that also interests me so much is how Jesus interacted with demons. And then it came to me, or how the demons interacted to Jesus. Because what would they say? Oh, Jesus, son of God, don't come near me. He wouldn't even have to tell them who he was. And they would be like, oh, uh-uh, I know you. Don't come around me. I think that is so interesting. How Jesus took care of his own spiritual health and relationship to the Father. 
Jesus gives us examples of how he would go away at times and just spend time with his heavenly father in prayer and he would just get restored and rejuvenated himself. I also love Jesus' example when it comes to regarding the will of God the Father. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? Nonetheless, your will, your will be done. So those are just a couple of things that I that just stick out to me when I think about Jesus' life um, here on earth. Those are just a few of the things. I believe that for us to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we should look at how he lived, how he interacted, how he responded as an example for us to also follow. I think many times our response and our reaction, doesn't it happen sometimes that you respond and you react before you think? done that, been there, said the words, rolled the eyes, showed the attitude, the response was out there, the reaction. I love looking at how Jesus handled those moments and how he responded and how he reacted. So one of the things we're gonna look at tonight, we're not gonna get through all six of my interesting things that I've pointed out, but I do wanna start with a couple. So number one, let's look at how Jesus interacted with non-believers, okay? We find that Jesus was moved to compassion for non-believers, those who were considered lost. For in Matthew 9, verses 9 through 11, says, Then as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And so it was as, Ma- as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was willing to sit at the table with tax collectors. Who were the tax collectors? They were normally considered cheaters, liars, betrayers of their own people. And yet here he was willing to call Matthew to follow him and then go sit at the table with other tax collectors. He was willing to sit at the table with sinners. Why? Because he saw them as someone who was spiritually sick and in need. He made it clear in verse 13 that his purpose of coming was to call such people to repentance. He came to seek and to save the lost. Let me read this to you from Matthew 25, 35 through 40. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Then... When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus was using this and was explaining the importance of meeting people where they were at. I think sometimes as Christians, we have a tendency of thinking that somehow or other the sinner has to come up to our level and then they're good enough to be around. 
You know, sin is ugly. Sin is ugly. And those living in sin can often appear ugly as well. Their language can be ugly. Their attitudes can be ugly. Their actions and their responses can be ugly, right? Look at ours, and we're Christians. I think it is so interesting how so many times we as believers are often surprised by the actions of those who don't believe. Why are we surprised when non-believers act like non-believers? Why? Why are we in shock when somebody who is not a Christian does these off-the-wall, crazy, ugly, sinful things? They're just being what they are. Someone who is not following Jesus Christ. They don't have Holy Spirit working in them the way that we are to have Holy Spirit working in us, tugging on us and whispering to us and convicting us and pulling us in. Mm-mm. Right? Why are we surprised when a non-believer acts like a non-believer? What really should surprise us is when a Christian acts like a non-believer. That's what should surprise us. A non-believer acting like a non-believer should be expected. I don't believe that Jesus ever looked down on non-believers. But instead, he saw them where they were at in their place of need. Someone who was hungry, someone who was thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, a prisoner, all of these things, both physically and spiritually, and yet he met them there. And we are told that when we meet them there, we are doing it as unto Christ. If we are Christians looking down on non-believers as holier than thou and better than them, then we will never reach those people. We'll never reach them. We'll never reach an unbeliever if we are always this arrogant, I'm better than you person. Now that's not for us to go, oh, I'm such a sinner. That's not for us to lower our standards. That's not for us to lower our morals. That's not for us in any way to take a back, a back step or, and be like, you know, okaying everything that they're doing or whatever. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if we are Christians are looking down on non-believers as holier than thou and better than them, then we will never reach them. Instead, we, we will appear no better than the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus's time who were arrogant spiritual snobs. Besides, you think about it, if we had not accepted Jesus Christ's grace and mercy and forgiveness, we would be just as ugly. If not for the grace and the mercy of God and Jesus coming to die on the cross, I go in the exact same way. There are many examples of how Jesus interacted with non-believers, but one thing that I want us to really see is how Jesus would meet them where they were at, but he would also call them up higher. He always called them up higher. When Jesus came to meet a woman caught in adultery, he met her at her lowest point. She was literally caught in the act of adultery. How much lower of a point can you be at? And here she is being brought out to Jesus, ready to be stoned by the spiritual leaders of the time for her act. What does Jesus do? He kneels down. He kneels down and he starts to write in the ground, the dirt, the sand, and he begins to write. He addressed her where she was at. She'd probably been thrown to the ground, right? So where did he go? He went down there too. 
What would that have been like if she had been laying on the ground and here's Jesus just hovering over top of her? No, he just, he went ahead and he got down too, kneels down, starts writing in the ground. He told her to go and sin no more. He saw her in her sin, but then he called her up higher. That's what we are also to do. Meet people where they're at and call them up higher. My husband has been such a great example of this to me. He truly has been. I'm telling you what, he can literally be an evangelist anywhere he goes. Um, It is literally amazing to me. He has much more boldness than I do. Um, I could be as bold as I need to be when I'm up in front of a bunch of other Christians. But you give my husband and a bunch of uh, rough, toughen, tough talking guys and like he can just, hey, you know you, um, you really don't need to be talking like that. I don't talk like that or I don't know. He just will say something and they'll be like, oh really? I don't know how he gets by with saying what he does, but he does. And, and he is such an evangelist wherever he goes. It is amazing to me. And so he's always been a great uh, example of this. And one of the things that he has talked to me about and has encouraged me in, he'll say, Krista, you can talk to people about the deep, hurting, ugly places of their life when you get into a relationship with them and they trust you and they'll hear what you have to say. And I have literally watched my husband get in relationship with men that he has worked with. And it has taken some of those men 10 years, 10 years for them to finally give themselves to the Lord. But for 10 years, he kept just calling them up higher, meeting them where they were at, but calling them up higher. Again, meeting them where they were at, but calling them up higher. And he literally has guys to this day that 10 years later are now wonderful, in love with Jesus Christians. Because of that, how can I speak to a non-believer about the ugly parts of their life if I'm not willing to gain their trust? Because if I just go up to them and I just start telling them about their ugly parts of their life, what are they going to do? Well, who do you think you are, right? Now, this is totally, totally different from okaying their sin or participating in their sin or enabling their sin or encouraging their sin. That's not what I'm talking about. We do not want to okay or participate in their sin, or enable or encourage it. No, we want to call them up higher. That's what Jesus did for us. He called us higher. What I mean here is showing them the compassion and the care through relationship that gives us permission to then speak to them about the deeper parts of their lives. And you know, it is amazing because still to this day, those guys that Scott has talked to and some of them have moved on, they've retired, but buddy, they, will, they know who to call. They know who to call. And there are so many times like, who are you on the phone with? Oh, I'm on the phone with such and such. Oh, okay. He's encouraging them or he's giving them another scripture or whatever. Mark 6, 34 says that when he, Jesus, came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. When we see non-believers acting like non-believers, we are to be moved with compassion, seeing them as lost sheep without a shepherd. And then we are to follow Christ's example to call them higher. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Have you ever thought about this? 
if the salt loses its flavor, it's still salt, right? But it's now worthless salt, right? Have you ever had worthless salt and you just keep adding the salt and you're like, I understand, why am I not getting any more flavor? It's because the salt has lost its flavor. It's still salt. Let's not be like Christians who have lost their flavor. We're still Christians, but we've lost our effectiveness. Let's not be that. I don't want to just be called a Christian, but I've lost my effectiveness. I've lost my flavor. No, I want to be a Christian who has effect, that has flavor. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are not to hide our light in compromise or shame, but to follow Jesus' example in such a way that our life brings glory to God. Jesus' purpose in coming to the earth was to call sinners to repentance and to seek and to save that which was lost. And we are his hands and his feet extended. That's what we are. Matthew 18, 11 through 14. For the son of man has come to say that which was lost. When Jesus was talking about the lost sheep, this is the scripture in Matthew and then again in Luke 19:10, Jesus also says, for the son of man has come to seek and to say that which is lost. And in this reference, he is referring to Zacchaeus. How many of y'all know the story we used to sing? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Right. Verse five. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Verse six, so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw, there's those old people again saying, why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus sitting with the sinners? Why is Jesus sitting with the tax collectors? Why is Jesus talking to Zacchaeus? But when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner? Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus once again was willing to be with sinners regardless of what the onlookers were saying. Why? Because he saw this sinner as a son of Abraham who was worth seeking and saving. In all of Jesus's interactions with sinners, he was very careful to reserve his most intimate relationships with his hand-picked disciples. I want you to get this. In fact, out of the 12 disciples, Jesus kept his closest relationship with three, Peter, James, and John. I believe that this is a good example for us because even though Jesus ate with sinners, sat at the table with sinners, the tax collectors, people like Zacchaeus, Jesus kept his most intimate relationships very guarded. He kept his most vulnerable relationships very close. Out of 12 disciples, he had three that were even closer, Peter, James, and John. And I believe that this is sound words for us 
to take into consideration ourselves. That those closest to us that we share the most with intimately, whether it's spiritually, maybe about our finances, maybe about our health, whatever it is, they should be close-knit select group of fellow believers who will strengthen you and encourage you and pray for you in your faith. So do you see the difference there? We have to associate, sit at the table, have dinner, interact, even befriend. I said it. Befriend those who are not serving the Lord. But when it comes to those deep, intimate relationships, those are for our fellow Christians. Because those are the people that we need to be praying for us while we're interacting with people who don't know the Lord. They're the ones that we need to be holding us up spiritually and we're holding them up spiritually as we're interacting with people telling them about Jesus. They're also the ones that keep us accountable for when we are witnessing and interacting with those that don't know Jesus. Now, why would you need that? Because as you're interacting with those that don't know the Lord, you can start being influenced. You can start, you know, what is it? It just takes one apple to rotten the whole bunch. If you have one rotten apple, it doesn't take long for it to start spilling over to the other apples. But when you have that close-knit relationship with other Christians that will hold you accountable as well and can help call you out. Do you know that's what we do with each other as Christians? Ooh, we don't like that, do we? It's scriptural, scriptural. That's why it's okay to judge other believers. Yep, I've already preached on that one. I'm not gonna go back. If you need me to go back on that one, I will, but I've already preached on that one. We hold each other up. And don't we need that, especially now in this day of age? Don't we need to be holding each other up? Because there is so much that is going on that we could so easily get pulled into. But my fellow Christian is going to look at me because they truly love me and they're going to say, hey, Krista, wait a second. And then I should see it as, whew, I've got a fellow believer in Christ that cares about me enough to speak into my life and say, hey, wait a minute, Krista. So if you have those type of people, be incredibly grateful. If you don't have those kind of people, pray for the Lord to send someone to you like that. It can be your spouse. It can be, I'm telling you what, husband and wives are great for this. They are. They can be each other's strength and encouragement. They can, hey, I have been called out on things from my husband. I have called him out on things. I've had my 26-year-old daughter call mama out on things. I've called my 26-year-old daughter out on things. Because I care enough about them spiritually that we hold each other spiritually accountable. So those are the ones you make close. Those are the ones you guard and keep those relationships very close. And it's a select group. Wow, it is 18 after and I haven't even gotten to my number two. What am I going to do? All right, there is no way, but if you can give me just a couple more minutes, I'm gonna see what I can do. How about that? All right, number two, this interests me, is how Jesus interacted with believers. How Jesus interacted with believers. In Matthew chapter 23, and I won't take the time to read it all, but in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is pronouncing woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were those whose job was to keep record, okay, And Pharisees were those who taught in the local teaching houses or synagogues, 
of that day. They were considered the religious elite of the day. They were the most learned and knowledgeable of the law of Moses. They knew Jewish law. They knew all the do's and the don'ts of what it meant to be a good Jewish person. Okay, they knew all about the sacrifices and all of these sort of things. But Jesus had his most harsh words for them. The whole time that he was on this earth, who did he have his most harsh words for? The most spiritual elite people. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. So we're gonna see what we can get through. But Jesus starts out the chapter by telling those listening to respect the scribes and the Pharisees for their position. But then he turns around and says, but don't copy what they do. Don't do what they do. Their religion was rooted in a prideful heart and emphasizing the law and completely missing the intention of the law. In their emphasis on the law, they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders and then do nothing to help them bear it. Wow. All their works they do to be seen by men. In verse 13, Jesus' first harsh words to the Pharisees is, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Wow. Jesus is saying to the most learned, most educated people uh, spiritually, religiously of that time, you are keeping people from heaven. Wow. The Pharisees were preventing people from finding salvation because their own religion was empty and selfish. They were taking advantage of widows and making long prayers for show. Jesus confronts them concerning their strenuous efforts to win converts and lead those converts to be twice as much children of hell as the scribes and Pharisees were. Jesus is calling their converts children of hell. What does that mean? Leading those converts to be twice as much children of hell as the Jews and the Pharisees were, they were religious hypocrites deserving of hell, and they did not practice what they preached. They rejected God's provision for their salvation, but instead attempting to justify themselves through their own righteous deeds. They were called blind guides, blind fools, unfit to guide others. They were blind to their own sins. They preferred to squabble over irrelevant matters. Well, it's too cold in here. That's my favorite seat. They need to change the carpet. Somebody took my parking spot. I've been in churches like that. I've been in board meetings like that. I've been in church, you know, the once a year church meeting been in those. Jesus confronts them concerning their great concern of tithing, but then they neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus likens them to dishes that were clean on the outside, but left dirty inside. Their righteous actions made them appear clean and virtuous on the outside, but inwardly they had hearts full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus compared them to whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and uncleanness spiritually dead. Jesus called them snakes and brood of vipers. And these were the religious elites of the day. And you think to yourself, oh, well, that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's not me. No, not me. But in what ways are we like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? In what ways are we? 
In what ways, Krista, are you? Selfish, arrogant, boastful. Oh, let him see me pray. Let him watch me worship. Hmm. Did I tithe? Sure did. That person didn't tithe. I didn't see them put any money in the bucket. Guys, do you know that so many times we think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were the elite leaders of that time? We put pastors and teachers in that position. Oh, that's the kind of people who would be Pharisees and Sadducees because, you know, they're the learned. They're, they're the really knowledgeable ones. So it, it would apply to people like that, not me. Do you know how learned we are by just living in America? Do you know how learned we are of the scriptures because we can hold it in our hands? It's called a phone and it's called Bible apps and it's called every commentary and Bible dictionary you could imagine is at your fingertips at your Bible. I mean, of your Bible at your phone. We are elite because we have so much knowledge of the gospel. We have so much knowledge. We, we come to church and we get spoon fed it time after time after time. We are elite too, because we've been so privileged. We've been given so much spiritually. And with that, we can have an attitude of a Pharisee and a Sadducee or a scribe. I believe that Jesus really could not stand a fake religious person. That Jesus expects worship that is true. That we as followers of Christ need to be careful that we do not lead others astray. That we do not cause a stumbling block for others to come to Christ. When I started this teaching tonight, I started with the word Christian and when it was first used in the Bible. But tonight, I would like for us to take an even deeper look into ourselves than the title Christian. And my reason for that is because the title Christian has become so overused, so misused, so randomly applied to everyone and everything. I want us to think more about how am I following in the steps of Jesus? How am I being an example of him? How am I being a follower of Christ? How am I following his example when I interact with non-believers and even in how I interact with believers? And his interaction with religious people so that we ourselves will not be shallow, righteous hypocrites, but true followers of Christ, pointing others to him, not selfish, not petty, not look at me people who wear the nation, but sincere imitators of Jesus. You know, this is something that sticks into my mind. I've done some waitressing in my, in my time, and uh, it's, it's, it's amazing because... I'm just going to be honest with you. I always know who are the church folks when I'm a waitress. I have a friend that has been a waitress for over 30 some years and she is now a, a manager at a very um, well-known restaurant. And before she came to know the Lord, she is now serving the Lord and I'm so proud of her and happy for her. But she talks about how it was a running joke on Sundays because all of the other, other waiters and waitresses would be like, oh, great, the church people are coming today. They were the worst tippers. If you're a waitress in here, you can, uh, you can um, back me up on this. Um, the worst tippers, the most demanding, wanted everything immediately, had you running like a crazy person trying to take care of all of their needs. Seriously. 
I'm not exaggerating. I promise you I'm not. In fact, I just had an experience of this here just recently. And, and so I had this whole group come in from a church and I was waiting on them. And next thing I knew, um, they were changing all the fan the settings on the fan because they didn't like it. And then they were opening up all the windows because they were too hot. Didn't matter if the air conditioner was on and they were letting out the cold air. And I mean, honestly, and I, I just thought, I went into the kitchen area and I said to a couple close friends of mine, I said, um, please promise me that if I ever act like that in a restaurant, you will smack me. You will bring it to my attention. You know, I honestly believe that as a Christian, sometimes if we're not careful, we can think of ourselves a little more highly than we should. When all we are, are dirty, ugly, rotten sinners, worms, saved by grace. And if not for the grace of God, so go, go us, so go, go us, goo. so go us, right? We would be acting the same way. I don't want to be those people that Jesus has to reserve his harshest words for. I don't want to be that person that Jesus has to say, Krista, you're an empty tomb. You're spiritually dead. You look great on the outside and how you present it all, but on the inside, you're spiritually dead. You're full of dry bones. You're actually doing more harm than you are good. Boy, that's harsh, isn't it? Boy, this is a real fun, feel-good Wednesday night, isn't it? Your hump day to get you through the rest of the week. Krista called us all a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees and vipers and snakes and everything else, right? You, us dirty, ugly people lost in our sin. That's so true. Let me read a scripture to you, Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. It says, therefore, become imitators of God. Copy him. And follow his example as well-beloved children. Imitate their father and walk continually in love. That is, value one another. Practice empathy and compassion. Unselfishly seeking the best for others. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, slain for you so that it became a sweet fragrance. In how we interact with other believers and in how we come across as a believer, let's be a sweet fragrance. Let's be a sweet fragrance. And I don't know about you, but the only way I can even begin to do that is first of all through repentance and second of all saying, Holy Spirit, do it through me. Do it through me. You're going to have to kill Krista, but do it through me. Have you ever prayed, God, kill me? I told my brother one time that I had prayed that. He said, what in the world? I said, but Brian, don't you understand? I want to be dead to Krista. Isn't that what the scripture says? Dying to ourselves, 
denying ourselves, taking up the cross of Christ, that means something's got to die. And every single time that sacrifice tries to crawl off the altar, you got to put it back on there again. And you got to offer it back up to the Lord again. And you have to say, dear God, I repent again. Here I am. And then you got to say again, Holy Spirit, here I am. Do it in me. Do it through me. Work on me. Work in me. Change me. Grow me. Stretch me. Because I've got non-believers that I've got to show them the light of you. And I've got non-believers that I've got to eat some dinner with so I can call them up higher. You know, I think one of the, I know it's 735. I think one of the most selfish things that a Christian can do. I think one of the most selfish things that a Christian can do. You ready? Is keeping Jesus to yourself. It's one of the selfish, most selfish things you can do is keep Jesus to yourself. I'm not going to be a Pharisee. I'm not going to be a Sadducee. I'm not going to be a scribe. I don't want Jesus' harsh words for me. I want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I want to be an imitator of God, of Jesus Christ. And when I'm not... I want Holy Spirit to convict me, give me my spiritual spanking, and send me on my way. We as Christians don't like spiritual spankings, do we? But we all need them sometimes. I loved my kids enough to give them a few when they needed them. And they turned out to be some pretty good kids. If Jesus has to give me a spanking, that's okay. I'll take it. It says that he disciplines who he loves. I'd rather him discipline me and show that he loves me and get me straight and make me eat my words and make me repent and make me have to say I'm sorry to a few people than to leave me alone. Right? Amen. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Stand up with me, please. Oh, precious Lord Jesus, precious Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you. What a powerful name, the name of Jesus. We thank you, precious Lord God, that you care enough for us to remind us, dear Lord God, that we must follow you. We must change. We must grow. We must become imitators of you. We must surrender ourselves to you, precious Lord God. I pray for every single one that is here tonight that you are going to use each and every one of us, Lord God, to speak into the hearts and the lives of those that do not know you. That precious Lord God, we are going to be able to be a witness, a testimony, an example of you. We are going to be a city that is set up on a hill. We are going to be a light that shines for you. We are going to be salt that does not lose its flavor, but instead we are going to be examples of Jesus Christ and the mighty grace and the mercy that you have shown to us. I also pray that precious Lord God in those areas, Lord Jesus, where we have become dead and dry and religious and selfish and greedy and all of those things that the, the spiritual elites of that time, they were and that you were speaking to where we have become like that precious God, reveal that to us, show that to ourselves, precious God whisper it in our hearts, reveal it to us, God, so that we too, Lord Jesus, we can bring those things to you and we can say, God, I don't want that. I don't want to be like that. I want to be like you want me to be. Reveal those things to us, Holy Spirit, I pray. And then Holy Spirit, I pray and ask that in your holy, holy, wonderful, wonderful power, your name and your authority, I pray that you will work in us, Holy Spirit. I pray that you'll work on us, you'll work in us, and you won't leave us to ourselves, but you will change us from glory to glory that we may be pleasing to you. In your holy name, precious God, we ask all of these things. Thank you, Jesus. Amen, amen. You may be afraid to come back for next Wednesday, but if you are not...
We're gonna get past the really harsh words and we're gonna look at some other things that uh, we can take as following Jesus Christ more. Thank you all.